2: human nature provides this great uh, foundation for belief in god that by virtue of just being humans and having the kind of minds we have uh, we've got a certain receptivity to the divine that's sort of just waiting there to be filled in it's not an add-on it's not a mistake it's not an aberration it's just part of what it means to be
1: human Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot and it's good to have you along as we continue this series of special shows as we think through issues of science and virtue around some of the hard issues of our times. But that thinking brings up an important question about how we think as humans. And that gets us into psychology and cognitive science. Some pretty heady stuff about our heads, as it were. Uh, Gabe, where are we going today on Q Ideas?
0: Where we're going with this dialogue and where we're going with Justin Barrett, who's got a Ph.D. in psychology at Cornell University, a B.A. in psychology at Calvin. He's the president and founder of Blueprint. 1543, but more importantly, he practically is going to help us understand cognitive science. Now, this is a category and an area that doesn't get talked about a lot. It definitely influences how we think about psychology. It's something in the last century that's gotten a lot more attention. But he and I are getting into a conversation about how does this relate to every one of us today and how information is being presented? And even as Christians, how do we think well? I mean, around this space with Q Ideas, Our tagline has been, for years, stay curious, think well, advance good. Well, the only way we can think well is to assess even, how am I responding to information? How do I process what I know to be true? And how do I then convey and communicate it? Well, today, I'm going to ask Justin some of these questions as we understand from a cognitive scientist how the mind works, not just the brain, not just neuroscience, but how does the mind work? How do our knee-jerk reactions tell us a lot about what we've heard, what inputs we have, and what we believe? And how do those change over time or do they change? And so I think you're going to be intrigued by this conversation. I think it'll interest you. And he is an amazing leader. He just recently wrote the book called Cognitive Science, Religion, and Theology from Human Minds to Divine Minds. Let's listen and know. Listen, your book, Cognitive Science, Religion and Theology, with the subtitle, From Human Minds to Divine Minds, is a deep work. It's expressing some ideas that I would imagine in our audience are things that they don't think about a lot. We don't get the opportunity to sit with someone in your role that studied at this level and help us really get insights that maybe we couldn't have otherwise. So thank you, number one, for just taking the time to write this book and then to talk with us. But I want to start with definitions. I think that's always helpful so us, so we can get on the same page. But would you talk a little bit about what is cognitive science? Sure. Uh,
2: the short definition is cognitive science is the science of the mind. How does the mind work? How do we think, form ideas, beliefs, uh, perceive the world?
0: Uh, use language, problem-solve, and all that good stuff. So how does the mind work? And that's different than what most people are becoming more familiar with is neuroscience. And talk about the differences of those two subject areas. Sure. So the neuroscience is the study of the
2: brain, neurons, and how they work. And so one way to think about the difference is, and it's an imperfect analogy, but it's a little bit like two different ways of approaching a computer. So some people who are computer experts know about how the, the circuit boards work, how all of the different pieces go together and function. And uh, so, you know, if you pour water on your computer, it's, that person knows why the water has shorted it out and caused it to have problems. But in your sort of day-to-day interaction with your computer, you might want to know, well, gee, why... Why isn't uh, my operating system working the right way, or why is it that this new piece of software isn't downloading? Well, that's a functional level. It's not the hardware level. It's sort of how how is the software and maybe firmware working, and you can almost think of it as that kind of a, a difference. Um, the human mind is more like our software or firmware, and then the and so that's what cognitive science does. And neuroscience looks at the the wet stuff, the the brain. Let me give you a, a concrete example, if it if that would help. So one of the really kind of cool things we know from cognitive science is that from when babies are born, they selectively attend to human faces in the environment. Well, that's a behavioral kind of property that we can study as a cognitive scientist. Well, How does does that develop in babyhood? What kinds of configurations of eye-like things and mouth-like things do babies go, oh, hey, that's cool. I'm going to look at that. That's a cognitive science problem. The neuroscience problem would be, well, what part of the brain is activated when a face shows up Mm -hmm. or something that looks like a face? Is it sort of in the back? Is it on the sides? Is it multiple places? So you can see these are overlapping kinds of domains of scientific inquiry, but they're not exactly the same.
0: And how long has the field of cognitive science been studied in that way? Because I know neuroscience is one that's become much more aware of in recent decades. Is cognitive science something that we've been studying all along, but it's just now more people are able to speak about it with new definitions and language that they can interpret and understand?
2: Yeah. Neuroscience, uh, as you say, is has been really driven by new technologies that we're getting, especially in the last few decades. So that we're getting these really splashy pictures that we get very excited about. In fact, it's even been called neuroenchantment. If I show you pictures of brain scans, we all go, oh, you can believe everything I'm about to say because yeah. I showed you a cool <laughs> picture. Cognitive science has actually been around for about 70 years. Okay. Um, Because it hasn't been quite as reliant on the same kinds of technology, but they do help. It hasn't really started being identified as its own specialized kind of area of study until about 30 years
0: ago or so. It really started getting its legs under it. Would, Would have psychology and psychotherapy and those categories been places that would have been thinking about cognitive science and how we respond and react to different situations?
2: That's right. That's right. Cognitive science, in some ways, is really an interdisciplinary space. It's it's when cognitive psychology, areas of anthropology, linguistics, computer science, philosophy of mind, and neuroscience get together and collaborate. Um, it's that
0: kind of a space. Yeah, I think of like Pavlovian theory and people who in the 20th century were writing a lot about the mind and the ways in which it can be trained and manipulated. And I think they were pressing into some of these areas and helping people be warned a bit that be careful kind of how you're processing information and and be aware of it. Don't just think what you've processed is necessarily the truth just because it feels that way. It, it could be that you were manipulated and processed in that way. How do you see the cognitive science arena today, 2022? How do you see it being really important for human beings to be aware of, to be thinking about? What are some of the practical applications of this area of study? Well, I think you've already hinted at
2: it for a long time. There have been folks taking advantage of their knowledge of how we think to sort of drive the way we think, right? To manipulate us, to influence us, Uh, the persuasion kind of literature in advertising, Marketing and advertising is an area of really applied cognitive science in a certain way, uh, even if they didn't necessarily know it. And increasingly, as we are subject to so much information and we're trying to make lots of different decisions, well, understanding how it is that we acquire new beliefs, how we change existing beliefs, how we're resistant to certain kinds of information becomes really important to us. It's sort of going on all around us, this sort of information bombardment and there are more mundane forms in which uh, cognitive science is helpful like education really education how we teach kids in school but also how we train up uh, people in our workforces yeah well that's that's applied cognitive science as well how do we get them to acquire new skills new insights new techniques
0: yeah, I know our listeners know I've referenced Neil Postman a lot, someone who wrote the book Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, oh, yeah, that's a good book. You know, and he wrote a book called uh, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, where he talks a lot about education. And he talks about our kids and how much in our schools we do not teach them how to ask questions. We teach them answers, but the curiosity side, the question asking is how we learn how to critically think and that there's been a shift in that in the last many decades to where people are no longer learning how to think for themselves. They're just being fed information. Do you have concerns about that as you look at the current state of our society? And how much would you say that the need for critical thinking, using our minds to think through things is a lost skill? It does concern me a lot. Uh, We've adopted something like a, uh,
2: almost a, I don't know, it's almost a timber mill kind of uh, view of educating children where we just sort of tweak the machine the right way and we send them through like raw materials and we think we can get out the other side, whatever we want. It just doesn't work that way. Um, I think you're right. We want kids to be able to Think critically, and part of that reflecting on what they're learning helps. Uh, well, it deepens processing; it makes it more flexible for future learning, and it it it's you know it's the birthplace of creativity as well. If you just want a bunch of people who can just learn stuff rote, well, we can train dogs to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we want creative, innovative kind of people, we need to do something else. Uh, we need to teach them how to learn. Not just, we don't want them just to learn. We want to teach them how to learn and how to teach themselves. And that takes that critical
0: edge. Yeah. And that's the challenge I think that I know I share as I think about technology and where we're headed with artificial intelligence and technology doing more and more for human beings that require less and less of the human beings. It's just easy. It's convenient. And it actually stops the mental processing, the growth, the challenge that actually develops a resilience that's that's necessary to operate in the world. And I hope, and that's really a big part of our work, is helping leaders understand how to critically think, how to help create spaces where there's curiosity, there's good thinking. And I think as you describe cognitive science, it it helps us better orient to the loss of it, but also the need to it. I want to get into some real specific language that you use here and and have you describe it. Because the work that you did here wasn't just about cognitive science, it's about its relationship to religion and theology and how we develop beliefs and how those come to be and the more we can understand it, the more helpful it is and you you talk about the idea of reflective and unreflective beliefs and those two different types could you take a minute describe those differences of reflective and unreflective and then maybe how it might relate to how we understand our religious beliefs
2: sure the distinction i'm trying to get at there is that we've got this big reservoir of we use the word beliefs a little loosely here they feel like beliefs um uh, impressions, thoughts, associations that guide our behavior all the time without without even thinking about it. They're sort of automatic. They're fast. Uh, Don, Daniel Kahneman sort of thinking fast and slow is getting at the same kind of distinction where – it's estimated, and we don't really know, but it feels like about 90% of what we do, we don't have to think about in a careful, reflective sort of way. Like, if I'm walking down the street, where do I put my next step? Right. Well, I don't have to do a careful calculation about that. I just do that. And we can do a lot of that seamlessly. Well, a lot of our our learning, our attending to the world around us is is a similar kind of fast, automatic kind of process. And we often neglect that because usually when we talk about beliefs, we're thinking about, oh, well, we sit around reflectively and we make judgments based on evidence and arguments and that kind of information coming in. And what we don't appreciate, if we don't distinguish between what I've called unreflective beliefs and our reflect beliefs, is those unreflective beliefs, most of that stuff that's doing the the conceptual work for us, is influencing our reflective beliefs all the time. And it does, does it in a couple of ways. One is that it provides the automatic assumptions, the stuff we reason with when we're in a reflective or reasoning mode. So sometimes philosophers like to say, look, we, we reason from something to something else. You don't reason from nothing to something. Yeah. You reason from somewhere. Well, what's the somewhere you're reasoning from? These assumptions, intuitions, impressions that we have. Something seems good to us. And then we figure out, well, what's the right way to go about accomplishing that good? Well, where'd that belief in that good come from? Often it's just there, sort of waiting for us to start thinking about it. And it goes unexamined because it's one of those unreflective beliefs. So that's one of the really important ways in which unreflective beliefs impact these reflective beliefs. They're that raw material that we reflect on. And the second is that unreflective beliefs make some ways of reasoning easier than others. So we almost have these built-in structures that bias or that give us predilections and certain kinds of reasoning directions over others that lead us to associate or learn some things more quickly or to reach certain kinds of judgments over others. And those are going on all of the time, too. Mm-hmm. And so it may feel like when we evaluate the evidence for a particular claim, like, should I make this business decision or that one, or should I vote for this candidate or that one, it might feel like I'm really carefully thinking through all the facts of the matter, and and that's all. I'm just just the facts, you know. We're Sergeant Friday or something, but that's not what's going on. There's what's called motivated cognition. We have all of this other unreflective beliefs, feelings, processing tendencies, and so forth that are going to nudge us in one direction or another. And if we're not aware of those, and those turn out to be vicious in some way, or Uh, That's a strong word, but it just means it's a vice of some sort. It's, you know, not good thinking. If we're not aware of those, then we don't then use that extra sort of uh, conscious, reflective attention to correct for those and uh, tune them up.
0: Yeah, that's such a good description. I hope our listeners are following all that because I think what it speaks to is these natural biases that we have that we assume are not biases at all, but just truth. Right. And. I guess the question is for the Christian who's a leader, who's navigating space where they're trying to help people come to some conclusions about what is true and what is not true. Would it be safe to say there are some unreflective beliefs that are good to hold that align with your view of God, your religion, that shape the way in which you do interpret information? Or would you say every unreflective belief uh, should be questioned throughout all of life? Or is there moments where you go, no, I've actually settled on this. I understand it's part of how I view the world, and I view it through this lens, and I'm okay with that. I'm confident with that because I believe I'm seeing it in the most most truthful way. That's a great question. I don't want my distinction between unreflective
2: and reflective beliefs to make it sound like all of our unreflective beliefs are sinister in some way because they're not. It's naturally how we work. It's how our minds have to work. Otherwise, we can't go through life. We can't function properly. We could be completely paralyzed by indecision and not believe anything. So our enlightened philosophers like Descartes and Hume and so forth, they ended up basically turning into skeptics that couldn't really believe much of anything because they tried to question each and every unreflective belief and then sort of charge it as guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty so i take the view that if we have an unreflective belief it's most of these are there for good reason but there are certain moments especially when we're facing disagreement and somebody else sees something differently than i do it's good to sort of examine, well, why are we having a disagreement there? Is it because of some unreflective belief that we need to make reflective so that we can examine it more carefully? Once we've examined those reflective beliefs, then we can say, okay, I reflected on it. I'm good with it. So maybe uh, I've carefully examined the uh, the evidential grounds for the authority of scripture. And I'm satisfied that by and large, uh, I can treat, uh, say, the Bible as infallible. Well, okay, now I can sort of put that in the bank and I can move on. There may be moments I need to bring it back out and say, well, why is there tension between maybe how I'm understanding Scripture and, uh, I don't know, what I'm seeing in the world around me or a new scientific finding or whatever it is. Right. But by and large, I can keep that in the background. I'm good with that. Or maybe I have these intuitions. Mm. unreflective beliefs that, you know, I should love my mother and I should honor her. And uh, maybe I shouldn't kick puppies or something like that. Well, those are okay. Keep those. <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, right. You can dust them off if you want every once in a while, but I think by and large, we're like, yeah, I,
0: I think we're good with those. Well, and I think the distinction there is really important. And the fact that we also we all should have intellectual humility, right? Where we're it's okay to re-examine early beliefs that we had and understand that we grow and we change and we do gather new information, have new insights. And through that, we might change opinions. And that does require a humility though. And I think in our culture today, we find less and less of that kind of humility in the pursuit of people wanting to say what they believe and persuade everybody towards it. And, and we would do better to have a little more reflection. Uh, One of the areas that's also become a big feature in our culture is science and science and I would say for many people's become much like a religion. It's become something they're putting a lot of faith in, but was that really the design of science? And as you think about science, they many people argue that science has a monopoly on truth, but what do you say to that?
2: That's yeah, it's a, it's a deep concern of mine these days. Um, I think uh, there is widespread misunderstanding about what science is about. In fact, I don't even like to talk about science as a singular, you know, capital S kind of thing anymore because it's so commonly misunderstood. The sciences are tools for trying to figure out how the observable parts of the world work. That's what it is, or they are, those sciences are. And that's what they're good at, and they're not good at a whole lot of other things. So the sciences are not terribly good at doing history. They're not terribly good at telling us what we should do in life. They're not terribly good at uh, making predictions about one-time kinds of events. Mm -hmm. They're not really good at that sort of thing. And we shouldn't rely on them for that. Um, And we don't. Fortunately, we don't. Uh, You know, most of us, again, go through life trusting the people who seem around us, who seem to care about us and are relatively smart. Uh, (laughs) You know, we we lean on their advice for sort of conventional wisdom on how to do things. And that's the way humanity has been functioning for a long, long time. And that's perfectly good. We can't wait for science to solve all of these problems. It just doesn't work that way. The worrisome part is this kind of sense that people are pretending that science is a settled body of knowledge and it's the only body of knowledge. Right. And it's a patently absurd idea on its face. And I I sometimes run into these, especially, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, new uh, science doctoral students. And they're, Oh yeah, I'm studying the thing that, Enables us to know anything. And if you, if you can't do it scientifically, you can't know it. I'm like, well, hold on. Modern science has only been around for a few hundred years, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So one of the great inventions. Okay. So are you telling me that 600 years ago, nobody knew anything? <laughs> right. It just doesn't even make sense to say that yeah. or that when a baby comes out of the womb and they start looking around, they identify mom, you know, and they have yeah, a few months. They're doing, they don't they don't know anything because they haven't studied science. That's just crazy talk. So we got to just get rid of the crazy talk. About, <laughs> and we can still be very enthusiastic about the deliverances of the sciences, that they can be really helpful guides to us. And they're helpful guides, I think, because when engaged properly, they have that feature that you mentioned earlier. They have humility. The point of the sciences is to systemize a method for checking our own assumptions, our own perceptions, to make sure that we're observing things properly so that other people can check my work. That's science done properly Yeah, is that I test out my ideas. I don't just take them for granted. Right. Well, so science is built on humility. But it's sort of a, a distributed institutionalized humility because scientists worth their salt know that we can't trust each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, we, we scientists have our own biases, predilections, agendas, and so forth. And so we need each other to check us. We're really good at catching other people's mistakes. They're good at catching ours. So together, we can go forward a little faster and better.
0: Well, and I know that over the last couple of years has become quite a subject of conversation in the science, especially in the medical world of evaluating viruses and how they work and how they function and lots of opinions. We've had conversations at our events specifically related to the, the need for science to have an open dialogue, that when that dialogue starts to shut down and you're not able to challenge one another, learn from one another critique work, uh, offer different opinions and perspectives, it really shuts down the beauty and the value of science for our communities. And so um, I hope to see that get back to the fore uh, in the coming coming days. Well, finally, you, know, you do this work, you study, you research. Obviously, this is what you teach and understand so well. Um, it can become a little bit like a, a job, right, or a chore. But I'm just curious for you, how has your study of all of this given you hope? For the future, maybe impacted your own personal view of God and faith? Why I love working in this
2: sort of cognitive science of religious thought area is I've got to learn a little more, a little more fine grained way how it is that human nature provides this great uh, foundation for belief in God. That by virtue of just being humans and having the kind of minds we have, Uh, we've got a certain receptivity to the divine that's sort of just waiting there to be filled in. It's not an add-on. It's not a mistake. It's not an aberration. It's just part of what it means to be human. And uh, I just think that's a really exciting and powerful thing. And it helps me see sort of God's relationship with humanity in a different kind of way. It makes me think of faith in a different kind of way. Um, And it gives me hope that... If others can see the utility of the sciences in working in even these spaces that we think that many of those of us who are believers find a little bit sensitive, like our our very belief in God, we can see that the sciences are actually really valuable tools for people of faith. They're valuable tools for even theological inquiry. Yeah. And that we, as Christ followers, for instance, will see going into the sciences as a, a, a divine vocation. It's our for some of us, our way of living into the kingdom of God on this earth, and that's an
1: exciting hope for me. Again, thank you for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons this week and Gabe's conversation there with psychologist Justin Barrett, founder of Blueprint 1543, helping us understand how we think and hopefully helping us to understand how we can think better. After all, Gabe, that is so important for the Q community where we want everyone, especially leaders, to stay curious, think well, and advance good. This
0: subject's going to be really important,
1: really important for
0: uh, leaders to understand and to start to engage and to understand. Um, more about how we've been designed to think and how to how to use that for good, not for
1: evil. Yes, exactly. So as we wrap up today's show, Gabe, another in the special series on science and virtue. Thank you for your work in bringing these conversations to us.
0: I, I enjoy listening to these experts who go so deep into these amazing, beautiful categories. They commit their whole life to trying to help all of us better understand a concept that is really complex and the ability to simplify it so that we could listen today and we could learn and we could be encouraged and we could evaluate our thoughts and how we process and discuss is something I hope that encouraged you. And as you head out into this week, I hope you have a wonderful week. Keep thinking well.
1: Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com.